Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Truth Perspective. My name is Adam Daniels, and I'll be your host for the day. Uh, joining me in the studio is Harrison Keeley. Hello. Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Corey Shink. Hello, everybody. So today, we're going to be diving back into uh, the wonderful world of evolution and intelligent design. Uh, we'll be discussing some, some of what uh, intelligent design supporters are saying, the things that they're asserting with their theories, both implicitly and explicitly. We'll also discover whether or not all supporters of intelligent design are creationists, or if they leave that question as to who created the first cell unanswered. We're also going to be talking about process philosophy, uh, in particular, going over David Ray Griffin's book, Religion and Natural... Scientific Naturalism. Scientific Naturalism. There we go. Uh, we're going to approach uh, creationism and evolutionism from the standpoint of, well, we know from uh, prior research that creationism as a supernatural intervention by God, by Jehovah, uh, we know that that idea is wrong. But at the same time, we know from, again, prior research that neo-Darwinism is just as wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you're left with, you know, nowhere to go, basically. Yeah. So the question is, is there a way out of this uh, dilemma? Mm -hmm. And and what does that look like? Right, because the intelligent design people, like, of course, they've got a point. And most of their books are, are written... Um, mostly to to refute the neo-darwinist position and then to offer a, a very general but scientifically plausible explanation right what they say is that essentially the only known cause of new information is intelligence mm -hmm. therefore the injection of all this new information into biological systems must be from intelligence now they kind of um actually being scientists they stop there which i think is a is a good thing you know, they basically present the science and say, oh, well, here's all this information. It must have come from a mind, from some kind of intelligence. Okay, well, we can get behind that. And mm -hmm. even a lot of, um, like, neo-Darwinists who who have some awareness of these problems will get into that. Like, even Dawkins, when caught off guard at one point, said, oh, well, you know, the, the origin of life is a mystery, and who knows, perhaps it's, you know, perhaps the only explanation would be that some alien intelligence created it. I think Fred Hoyle said something something similar, but he was speaking, I, th I think, about the creation of, like, the universe itself, to some, like, uh, you know, some super intelligence. So, th that's a valid point to, a valid point to make, is to, is to just say, well, look at this stuff. It, it, like, um, just given the, the, the things that are supposed to be in operation according to neo-Darwinism, we can't get to what we have. There are just too many um, like observational and empirical and philosophical problems from getting from nothing to something through these chance random mutations. Like There has to be something else going on. Now this is where a guy like Perry Marshall in Evolution 2.0 um, provides some interesting things because he says, oh, well, look, it, the, like, mutations don't just happen by like random mutations, like uh, you know, a single single point nucleotide changes or whatever um that's not actually how evolution works like and he gives his swiss army knife um you know collection of different things going on in the cell how the like these known mechanisms for how dna rearranges itself and and um and produces new forms and not only dna itself but for you know one cell to engulf another cell and for them to become fused like uh, like symbiogenesis so we've got these all these things going on, but then the question still arises, 
And this is, I think, why neo-Darwinists are so um, um, so averse to taking intelligent design seriously, is that um, a, a lot of the evolution design people, in fact, I think like the majority of the, of the big names, like Steve Meyer and Michael Behe and... Uh, and um, um, you know Jonathan Wells and and these guys, Mike, uh, William Dembski, they are Christians, and so when they're speaking not in like a scientific capacity, they will they will say, oh well, you know that like this is where God comes into the picture. So whereas the creationists take a very literalist like position on the Bible and say God created everything in these kind of um, like miraculous creations out of nothing. God created all the animals, God created all the forms, God created the, you know, the, the dinosaur uh, fossils and all this stuff. Like everything was like this direct creation from God um, in like 3,000 years. <clears throat> the intelligence design people will say, well, no, the, the universe is billions of years old and evolution has been going on for, you know, hundreds of millions of years uh, or however long it's been going on. And, um, but they'd, they'd say, but we need something else to explain like these specific moments where things appear, like the first cell. The first cell is totally inexplicable in terms of any kind of known science and even evolutionary science, even neo-Darwinism. No one can explain how the first cell came about because there are so many different parts that have to come together at once and it's the same kind of problem looking at the fossil record where we don't have the intermediate forms, right? Mm -hmm. we, we can't even think of the intermediate forms that would lead up from just normal chemistry to the first fully functioning cell. It, just, it seems to appear out of nowhere. Just as new forms, new animal life forms, new body plans seem to appear out of nowhere in the fossil record. This was a problem for Darwin himself. He said, oh, well, you know, if, if we don't find, you know, he was specifically referring to the Cambrian explosion of life forms, if we don't find like these intermediate forms in the, in the fossil record, then my theory might be toast. And for the last 150 years, we haven't found those forms. In fact, the, like, the picture hasn't gotten any clearer. So it does seem, when you actually look at the fossil evidence, that these, these new forms appear seemingly out of nowhere in like a very short period of time, evolutionarily speaking, and then they stay the same for millions and millions of years. So whereas strictly going by like the, 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 the basic dogmas of neo-Darwinism, you should expect a steady, gradual changing that well that never stops changing mm -hmm. like things change at a constant rate and it's just you know some die and some and some live on and it's just this very steady process this very gradual process mm -hmm. um but if, but you you know you don't see that yeah. happening and of course you know some of that will be like the like darwinists will object that the they that some of these intermediate forms just didn't get um didn't survive into the fossil record but when you look at the like the totality of the evidence for so many years um None of them are there. Yeah. So it's like you have to posit that none of the transitional um, fossils, the transitional species or forms made it into the fossil record. And like uh, with each different like angle that you're looking at it, it just gets l more and more unlikely. And that's only to talk about forms. You know, you've also got the DNA and, uh, and, and just mutations. Like um, I think we mentioned when we were talking, one of these shows that we were doing, I think I mentioned the book by Douglas Axe, um, Undeniable. And he's, the, he's one of the guys that has done research on uh, proteins and protein folding and looking at like the, the prop probabilities involved in that basically because you've got a, like a, a sequence, like a me small to medium length protein chain that's like, I, I don't know, 120 amino acids or something like that. So you think about all the different possible um, like sequences that make up that chain and then what, what he and his team did was basically find the, or find the, 
the this the set of those of those, those total possibilities that will create um, a folded uh, protein because proteins have to fold into their shape in order to do anything. Some sh some uh, some sequences won't end up folding. Some will, and out of the ones that will, only a subset of those will actually be functional. So they looked at the at the probabilities involved in this, and then like basically determined the chances of taking one folded six, uh, like functional protein and mutating it randomly um, to to find another one of those possible functional forms. And like the, the, the chances of doing that are something like 1 in 10 to the 74 or something. Like it's this astronomical figure mm -hmm. to get from simply from one small to medium length protein chain to another. So it's like, so what he's basically arguing there is that it's impossible to get to, from using these hypothesized uh, evolutionary methods of change to get from just one protein to another. So that's so at, at almost every level of analysis, when you look at evolution and how things change and how new things come into being, there's a, a little mystery there. There's a little thing where we say, okay, well, we can't explain how that got to that without something, something happening in between that we don't understand yet. Mm -hmm. So, and basically, what that has to do with is information. Some, some like information needs to get injected into the system somehow. That's the main thing that the intelligent design people are saying. So. So Stephen Meyer was, is saying that in his books about the origin of DNA itself. He's saying it about the, the Cambrian explosion where all these new forms came in, all this new information. Doug Axe is, is saying that you need even more new information to, to even get new proteins. And, um, and it, so it's just this, in, this long sequence of, of what, are, what seem to be miracles, right? Mm -hmm. Where these things that shouldn't happen that end up happening. And that's, of course, why I think all of the intelligent design scientists are are Christian because they're open to that, right? They'll say, "Well, this looks like a, this looks like a miracle." Well, and so that's a, 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 a that is a a valid hypothesis because accor according to their worldview, miracles can happen, and it is a better explanation than neo Darwinism. Because at least neo Darwinism can't explain it. Like if you believe in God, at least that does explain it. But there is a there are um, kind of a group of people that won't go that far, like Perry Marshall. So Perry Marshall is a Christian, and we talked about his book. But in his book, you know, in the his actual argumentation, he doesn't talk about, um, um, or he might mention it, but he doesn't like give a, a hypothesis of how God would do this. What he actually argues is that the cells themselves have information. The cells themselves are somehow intelligent enough to know the language of DNA and to change themselves and to reorganize them, themselves, in, like in response to. Um, like environmental cues that say, "Oh, you know, danger! We need to do something." So the the cell itself says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna switch things around so we can survive this threat," and then something new comes about. So there's this there's this intelligence within the cell that's going on. So the, so what the the kind of mystery for us, I think, is is that well well how can we think about this? Because it's one thing to say that intelligence something you know somehow intelligence did this mm -hmm. something with intelligence does does all these things. Well, how does that happen exactly? I mean, um, you don't have to answer it. I mean, you, you can go the intelligent design route and just say, well, look at all these problems. It must have been an intelligence. You can say, well, yeah, sure. Um, we want to go a bit deeper, right? So Perry Marshall, at least, has like laid down his hypothesis. And um, he, I listened to a debate that he had recently w with Stephen Meyer. And they were going back and forth because uh, Perry was saying that, you know, we can, we can ascribe all this intelligence to the cell. We don't need to go to God. 
um, for the answers, because he sees that as a kind of God, of, God in the gaps argument. And the mm-hmm. God in the gaps argument, of course, is that you know we understand how all this stuff happens, then we don't understand this thing that connects the two, then we understand everything af- after it. So that little middle part that we don't understand, we'll say God did that. And there's been like a history in science of 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 um, like scientists starting, you know, well, from Newton and before, saying, okay, well, I don't understand this, so God must have done this, and then everything else happens. Like, God must have set, like, uh, you know, the the laws of interplanetary, you know, gravitational attractions and, you know, the, the orbits of the planets and all this, um, because he couldn't, couldn't explain certain phenomena surrounding that. And then, oh, what do you know? You know, other scientists d- discover, uh, like, a physical mechanism or a physical process or interaction that explains that. So, oh, that's one gap that got closed. God doesn't any longer have to be, um, you know, resorted to in order to find that or to explain that. So that's how Perry sees intelligent design. It's like, well, we don't understand this, so therefore let's get God to, to explain this. Um, he agrees that there has to be an intelligence, but he doesn't necessarily want to ascribe it to God. And then Perry, uh, Stephen Meyer's response to those was that um, he couldn't agree because Perry was, like uh, paraphrasing, he was ascribing to cells, which are arguably not as intelligent as humans, like a degree of intelligence that is just... Um, like not, not credible to believe in. He basically said that they that Perry is saying that cells have this kind of omniscient intelligence, that they are able to see like these vast, you know, complex, um, you know, languages and forms and information that even we can't see. Like we can't understand DNA yet. Somehow the cells do. He thinks that's kind of ridiculous. So he he thinks that it must be uh, it must be God. So that's that's the debate that I'm most more most interested in because you know I, I kind of totally reject neo Darwinism because I you know it, it is just a very um, silly philosophy essentially of course there's there's some good good observations but when it comes down to it like at, at its very root it's just totally hollow and can't can't explain any of the most interesting things about um, about evolution so. I'm going to say that, like that—that that to me is the most interesting thing. How does how exactly does intelligence um, get in there? So, do we want to go from there? Do you have any uh, any other things that you want to fill in before we kind of move on from there? Well, just in regards to the idea that uh, cells can't be that intelligent, um, in, in his book Evolution 2.0, Perry Marshall uh, describes the research done on bacteria that shows that they communicate with a quite sophisticated chemical swapping mechanisms where they can they can vote and they can count votes and mm. they can you know live as a community they can discuss things internally within that community with a certain chemical and then they can discuss things with other communities using a different set of chemicals so they have a, there there seems to be an archetypal way of communicating that stretches from you know bacteria all the way on up to humanity, so it seems like there are these uh, forms, if you, you if you will, like archetypal forms that exist the independently of you know the consciousness necessarily of the uh, of the uh, being and in, in that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so I'd agree with that. That definitely, um, and Perry Marshall isn't the only guy. Like uh, I think Jeremy Narby has a book called Intelligence in Nature, and there are various other ones. Like actually talking about all of these processes that go on in like plants and cells and bacteria that we would call intelligence. I mean, there's even one about the, um, 
what are they the, the, like the the giant amoebas that can grow like they're they're single celled but they're actually very large like you they're like the, you know the size of your fist or something maybe bigger and they can actually sol- solve mazes in order to find like the shortest path to food for instance and there's just a, b- a whole bunch of crazy stuff that s- seemingly simple life forms can do so i'd say that yeah that there is a definitely an intelligence there um i think steven meyer has a point in that when you get down to like the cell itself and you look at it and you then then you think well how can a you know how can a cell be so smart on its own, you know, in order to know that? And I think we even mentioned that on the on the show when we, when we were talking about evolution 2.0 is that if you think about just how complex the cell is, it's like there is like well, it is smarter than us, right? It's doing more than us. The like DNA and the way DNA works, it's like a, an information processing machine. It's like a computer that's more that's vastly more like orders of magnitude more complex than any um, software that we've designed, software or hardware, any computer. Like it is super efficient, super complex. The coding is um, like so intricate, intricate and like perfectly economical that um, like a short length of code in the DNA can um, can basically function as that code itself. But also, depending on how you look at it, can fo- depending on how you look at it, can uh, function as like one or two or three different other codes. And it's all embedded in this in this DNA sequence. It's like it's. Um, it's really mind-boggling when you look at it. So the, the point that I think that Stephen Meyer has is that you can't ascribe that intelligence strictly to the cell itself. Like, the cell itself doesn't know everything. Um, but then uh, um, what he gets wrong, is, I think, is that he basically won't ascribe any kind of agency or, or, or intelligence to the cell. It's like almost like, for him, it must be fully external. Um, the, the source of the intelligence comes... It comes completely from something else, like some transcendent god, right? And so that's the that's the the direction that a lot of these intelligent design people go in because it is such a mystery and like so like when you really look into this stuff, it is so mind blowing and so complex and so um, um, so you know enigmatic that you know what else can you could you hypothesize than that there must be some higher form of intelligence that's directing it. And, and so I think they, there, are, there are aspects of each that are correct. That's kind of that's why I like uh, David Griffin so much because he basically says that well you know we can we can we can take the best aspects of both sides of the equation and integrate them and actually put them into a philosophy that takes into account all of these things. So he you know he goes back to Whitehead for this, and the so I think that maybe we can try to present like this alternative. To, to both of these things, to try to account for all of these different things that are going on. Because you basically, you do need a source for this new information. Like you, need, you, need, you do need this intelligence in order to, we need to find this intelligence somewhere. We can ascribe a certain degree of intelligence to every level of, of creation, I think, you know, from electrons all the way up. Uh, you know, so protons are probably the stupidest things you know, in, the, in the universe because they only do one thing and, and uh, can't do anything else. But uh, and the things that we know of that are most intelligent are, are human. Most intelligent are humans. But um, is there something more intelligent? Well, I think we have to say we have to hypothesize yes. But before getting into Griffin and Whitehead and how they might explain this, one thing about um, one thing that I think we need to take into account when thinking about like the limits of intelligence, for instance, and why how cells may or may not be able to do these things on their own through their own intelligence. Um, and this is why I think Meyer was too quick to um, 
to reject the idea of this type of intelligence in in nature in in cells themselves he called it a kind of like animistic um mysticism or something like kind of he was pretty disdainful of the idea but if you think about hu just humans and if you look at the examples uh in um like some of the abnormal psychology like a, like the stuff that Stephen Browdy focuses on. Stephen Browdy's a parapsychologist, philosopher, but he's written books, uh, like he wrote one book on um, like multiple personality disorder. And he, he, so he, he doesn't just study um, like the weird stuff like uh, psychokinesis and tele telepathy, but also all of these things that are generally acknowledged in the scientific community, but that we actually can't explain. And th so there are, there are instances of just like baffling there are baffling examples of extreme what we would call like intelligence that intelligence that happens in certain humans at certain times that is just like off the charts so if you think okay well we're not that smart you know when we when we think about like mathematics or um you know we look at language or we look at this coding or anything but just look at the examples of like um savants for instance who seem to have like mathematical savants who seem to have like a supercomputer in their brain or in their mind, and we can't explain it. How do you explain that kind of like super intelligence, even if it's in like a, um, a very narrow like range of interests, if it's just one thing like math or something? Like, and, um, and just the, the, all the kind of hints that there's something going on in the, let's say, subconscious of, of humans where there's like a, a vast amount of like information processing that might be going on under the surface, and you look at the person, you think, well, you know, how how did they necessarily come up with that? You can think of like artistic genius. You know, where did the where, you know where did the masterpieces of of music come from? Like, how did you know how did Beethoven like compose these sorts of things? Like, where does it come from? And um, even just examples of like extreme um, like physical perfection, like in the in the exertion of or in the the performance of like a a, a routine of movements that is just perfect that is seemingly impossible for for any human i think i mentioned this one example before but like um there you know there are anecdotes and stories about people in in times of extreme need and um like when the stakes are very high it might be like um <clears throat> you know someone in a prisoner of war camp or something who has like the one opportunity for escape right but they have to throw this rock with a note on it, like across, you know, um, you know, sixty meters of empty space, and like get it into this small hole, you know, in, in another building. And in that moment, they make it, right? And it seems like just chance, right? Well, you know, it's just uh, they just happen to get it. But how how does that how does that thing how does that happen? How does that like extremely unlikely event happen? There seems um, one of the things Browdy hypothesizes, not only in in relation to these types of events, but in um, in relation to like ESP and psychokinesis, is that there is an element of need, like like emotion emotional urgency, like there's there's some uh, there's some uh, like impulse, some some emotional um, relevance and and and. Um, and valence, like in in the in the person themselves, that brings out these extraordinary abilities at the moment of need. It's almost as if this stuff is going on all the time under the surface, but in in everyday life, they they're just not necessary. So they're kind of suppressed, or they they they're 
like submerged underneath the surface. But in times of extreme need, they can come out. And, and this might, um, so savants, for instance, might be a kind of um, like fluke of nature where that, like one type of connection of that sort is just open all the time. So you might have someone who's just all, like all the time connected to that sort of like extreme mathematical ability or something. Or you might have someone, um, but it might also apply to just all, the, all these different areas of excellence. Like so for just um, like musical geniuses who like from like the age of four just seem to be masters of their instrument or um, and you find them um, in any kind of field. But so there's this some kind of connection to this deeper level um, that seems to be somehow um, in potential in human beings that kind of that gets unlocked in certain situations and in some individuals just in certain individuals it's uh, that that ability is unlocked within them but it seems to be it like to form some kind of like deeply rooted um, uh, um, like potential underneath the surface uh, potentially for anyone. Um, and and so we like the the question would be what is it that brings this out? Now there's a similar I think there's an analogy to be made with evolution and with with um, like mutations for instance this idea of need based mutations um, because one of the things that Perry Marshall points out and that others have for instance is that when you um, when you expose certain organisms to like a harsh environmental um, uh, stimulus of some sort maybe it's a um, like a lack of access to needed nutrients, or it might be like a temperature. Um, basically, when you put uh, an organism or a set of organisms in conditions that are not like conducive to their easy survival, then you know their system gets shocked and and it gets put into this kind of like chaos-inducing state. It's like okay, we got to find the answer, we got to do something, and then bam, um, they seem to find the solution, and or at least some of them do. They find the solution and adapt to that new set of conditions. But the problem there, um, like Marshall points out, is that, that like, how does that happen? How, how, if, if, if evolution is this mindless, gradual process, um, like the existence of a mechanism of this sort um, implies a pre-coding of that um, in order to take place, right? Basically, you have to code, you have to basically write in your code, if harsh conditions occur, then do this in order to find solution. And that has to be coded in beforehand in order for it to happen when it actually does happen. Uh, and you can't escape that. Like you can't, uh, you can't just say, oh, well, that's just random processes. And like there has to be a reason for the organism to actually engage in that sort of behavior. Um, otherwise it wouldn't, well, essentially. Um, well, so... Yes, a, a big point that he uh, brings home again and again is that random mutation uh, or this idea that things, you know, shit just happens over a very long period of time and, and seems to come together in what we now understand to be the human being or the cell uh, is noise and that noise destroys. So he's evoking information theory to say that uh, random mutation doesn't work, it can't work. Uh, according to the laws of information theory, um, it's just destruction. Uh, the example that you gave a, a little while ago, Harrison, um, you know, suggesting about how proteins folded and how long it would take for, for some successful uh, advancement to occur is, is a, a case in point. Um, so what Marshall suggests is that uh, it's not random mutation. 
uh, that exists, but something called he calls adaptive mutation, mm -hmm. and that there is potential in DNA. So uh, one of the ideas is that um, human beings contain something crazy like 97% of something called junk DNA, which because scientists haven't determined the use for, um, and I forget if that's the correct number or not, but um, you know, all of these uh, neo-Darwinists tend to dismiss as, as, as just this kind of extraneous genetic information that uh, you, you might as well lop away like a, like a, a bad appendix. Um, so uh, not exactly an answer to your question, but um, there is at least the, the possibility in all of this junk DNA, DNA that, for which we have no, uh, no answer to at this time, that where this, uh, this latent potential can be said to exist from. Uh, that's a very large number of uh, a very incredible uh, percentage of, of information that is packed within us that we have ex no explanation for, that seemingly exists without a purpose, but that um, you know through this emotional need that you evoked or through, uh, through some valence or, or through necessity, uh, seems to, under the right circumstances, get unlocked. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's one possible kind of source, uh, from which, uh, you have, um, uh, savants, you mm -hmm. have musical genius, you have people who do these, uh, so-called miraculous, uh, things in the moment. Uh, I'll just give you a little anecdote here. I was once in a little Boy Scout competition where you're supposed to light a match with a, with an end of a, an ax, which, which is, um... Highly improbable, uh, especially if you're 13 years old and, and you're not particularly well coordinated. <laughs> now, uh, this was a competition, and I knew I was going to do it, even though I'd never done it before and didn't practice. <laughs> so after, after 35 or 40 of, of these older Boy Scouts trying it and failing after five tries, I, I hit it on my third try. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a magical person by any stretch of the imagination. I was just this kid who, for whatever reason knew somehow that I was going to light a blue-tip match with an end of an axe. How did that happen? What came together in those moments, and how did I know prior to the competition that I was going to win it? It's, it completely baffles me mm -hmm. to think about it. I, I was very happy at the time. It was, it was a, a, a victory and a little bit of a miracle. Um, and who knows? Maybe it was a coincidence. But, but where did the certainty come from? That, that this was going to happen. What, what part of my uh, being or intelligence uh, in, in the cell or DNA uh, gave rise to the understanding that it was not only possible, but that I was going to do it? Mm -hmm. So um, there was, <clears throat> as you were talking, I was just thinking about in terms of how can we translate all of this uh, into something that's coherent. And I was thinking about the prehension, to use uh, Whitehead's term, uh, prehension, um, the prehension of the cell's ability to uh, understand complex forms or to be able to interpret something and translate it into the DNA. So, like, you know, there is this stressful environment 
and I need to be able to do this so that I can survive. Mm-hmm. And and where can that kind of come from? And I was yeah, thinking, how does, how does it know what this is? Yeah, how does right. it know what this is? And thinking about you know Whitehead's uh, term prehension, I was I was considering what it would look like for a human being, and I'm wondering if to make an analogy, what if there is something uh, out there that you know the cell can uh, comprehend the same way that we can recognize truth or beauty or morals. Well, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's, that's interesting because that, that this idea of this radical uh, subjectivity all the way down is a really interesting idea. The idea that cells can feel and perhaps they can't understand in the same way that, that we do. Um, but they can, they still have these, uh, this valence, this this idea of threat, the feeling mm-hmm. of threat, mm-hmm. and I was thinking in terms of the apparent intelligence of how they react to these things, um, it makes sense to me that the DNA is basically the training wheels. It's the code that tells the cell exactly what to do, and over the course of you know however many millions of years and epochs, cells uh, gradually continue to learn. They continue to learn, and as we saw in the book Consciousness Anatomy of the Soul. Every about every two hundred million years or so, there is a, a growth in this uh, the attractor dimension of the consciousness of these individual species. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that um, the DNA is doing the, a lot of the work, most of the work. But it's possible that the cell itself itself is still experiencing what it's like to go through all of these motions. You know, it's like a, a handicapped person. Um, you know, but still. Uh, mm-hmm you know, having, being moved by a, by a machine. Right. That reminded me of something that Jordan Peterson has said a few times recently when he's talking about free will. And basically, what, like, he, if asked if he believes in free will, he'd say, well, it's not total free will. Like, I don't believe that we're omnipotent, omniscient, um, you know, omnipresent beings that have full access to these kinds of things. We have free will, but we also have limitations. And the, the point that he makes is that um, we have a degree of freedom but the what the way free will seems to work is that we have we have this degree of freedom, but then we um, once we um, like put a, a certain motion into action, for instance, like the like a ballistic movement of your arm where you shoot your arm out, like you basically set that up, and then it then it proceeds um, automatically where you can't stop it. So there's a mechan a mechanistic process that happens that has been initiated by uh, a free agent, and this seems to happen on all levels. Where lower processes get automated, like for our like our breathing and our blinking and our digesting, like we don't consciously control all those processes in our bodies. They happen automatically, but we still choose, for instance, when and what we're going to eat if given the choice. We still have a degree of freedom over and above those automatic processes. And the reason I say that that happens on all levels is that, like you were saying, DNA does a lot of the work. The way I see it is that in the cell, there's a lot of these automatic processes that have been set in motion and that are going like automatically because they've been going for so long. But there, but that at the level of the cell, there is going to be a degree of freedom. There's probably going to be a degree of freedom at every level within the cell too. Um, you get more freedom the more complex you get. So the, the cell itself might have access to um, like a greater degree of of new choices, new things that it wants to do. And then somehow those ideas, those those desires, those goals to which it, it 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 feels like itself pulled then get um then put the the lower processes and the lower 
um, like mechanisms, the lower machinery into action to bring that about. So, um, so there's this automation process, and then on top of that, there is this degree of freedom that that then can steer and direct those automatic processes, and even instantiate new processes, um, like maybe um, like versions of the old process, but a, but a new process, and and that this happens all the way. So, so there's going back to this idea of like there must there must be this kind of or how does this happen? Like how does a cell like um, attach itself or realize what this is, right? Mm-hmm. Th- well, this needs to happen. Well, what is this? And then you can kind of, you compared it to like making, making an analogy to the way that uh, like human consciousness works. Well, you can think about it in terms of, well, starting with humans, <clears throat> like, um, well, that's the, probably one of the most easy examples is any kind of creativity, because mm-hmm. that's essentially what, what we're talking about. So when and and you can look at creativity in terms of like writing music or writing a novel or even just or writing a scientific paper or coming up with a theory or discovering a like a, a the solution to a, a complex mathematical program or problem like uh, so you look at the examples of like inspiration in the history of the sciences and in in the history of like uh, of all kinds of creative endeavors like artistic endeavors there is this. Uh, like this inspiration, like the idea comes out of nowhere. You mm-hmm. often hear musicians and songwriters say that they woke up and the song was fully in their head and they just wrote it down. And oftentimes creators like this will say it didn't it doesn't even feel like they're the ones doing it. Mm-hmm. They're just tapping into something and just translating it. So where do these ideas come from? Well, there's also an example that I, uh, I like to think about that from Lobachevsky where he talks about about being in this situation, in this society that is just like soul-destroying. And that at, in in any given instant you have choices to make, and it can be live or it can be life or death, based on the choice that you make. And it's a very stressful time to live under. It's a very stress. It's very stressful on your system. And he said that in such a situation, it becomes necessary to rely on your conscience. And he describes conscience as that that uh, that unhearable, that inaudible voice that tells you yes, do this, or yes, don't do this, or no, don't do this. Um, it's so and so. There's so in a situation, you imagine yourself, and you don't know what to do, and then all of a sudden, in your mind pops up, I'll do this. And it's like, well, okay, well, let's, let's give it a try. It's not always going to work, but, but according to Lobachevsky, in his personal experience, living through these types of situations, it did work, and, it, and that he had to rely on that ability, and it, it was a, an ability that he had to develop. So it's not something that like anyone can just say, you know, the, you know, they're they're just going through life and say, oh, I don't know what to do now, and then then they just do the first thing that comes to your mind. That's probably not what he's talking about. Like this is a time of extreme need, right? These are these experiences that we're talking about where it's like it's life or death, and and you do or don't, and and you 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 know you have to make the right choice. And there there seems to be an ability to make that right choice. So the really the question is like one of those big questions. Well, where does that come from? Where do those new ideas come from? Where do those those goals come from? Where do those act, Where do those um, like possible behaviors come from? How do we have access to them? That's what Griffin and, and Whitehead before him tried to answer, and I think you know did a good job of answering. It's like because the um, let's take it back to the to the perspective of like evolution, and and we'll, we'll try then we'll kind of come back and put it all together. Is that when you look at um, like creationists, for instance, um, creationists like the, the, it is this kind of God in the gaps thing where God has these certain abilities. He's om- he's omnipotent. He can do anything. And then at these certain moments, God chooses. Okay, well, I'm gonna just basically stop what's going on right now, 
and I'm going to just like inject my hand for, inst- for, for, for an instant and just change these things about and then I'll let them go on for a bit again. And then, oh, you know, a million years later, oh, you know, I, I think I've got to make an adjustment here. So I'm going to, you know, create a new species here and inject that. Or I'm going to, you know, blah, 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 etc. It's these, these sporadic inf- in, like, intrusions into the, the cosmos of this divine being. And um, the idea behind omnip- omnipotence is that God created the universe out of nothing and has complete control over it. There are different variations, of course. Some people will say God created the universe but doesn't intervene or, or whatever. But the basic idea is that God can do anything and everything. God has complete control. Like if he wanted to, like he could turn Corey over here into a, you know, a pink squid and, and just, you know, he'd be there for instance and then God could just like snap his fingers and he'd be back to Corey. And like anything that you can imagine, God could do to the cosmos. Now, this is what makes a, a lot of um, scientists squirm because they don't like that idea. And I think that um, while they have a lot of good reasons for, or, or a lot of bad reasons for rejecting um, any kind of like um, um, theology or like higher, um, like non materialistic philosophy or, or whatever, that in this they have a good idea. So, this is the thing that actually that Griffin and Whitehead would agree with is that 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 perspective is basically a supernatural perspective and what they mean what they mean by that is that there is this thing called nature that's the way the universe works that's the the chain of cause and effect not just the chain of cause and effect but the nexus of cause and effect like all of the causes and all the effects operating at 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 any given time and over all time and that that seem like from our everyday experience it seems like that cannot be broken it's always happening and for something supernatural, it's some being outside of that that has complete control over that process and at any given time can intervene. And basically that implies that, that beings um, don't have any freedom, don't have any power themselves to do anything because God has like a veto. Uh, n- n- he either has a veto over every decision that gets made within the cosmos or he's actually controlling everything behind the scenes, which is even more deterministic. So... So that's one of the reasons that, that um, scientists and like, specifically materialist scientists reject that is they say, well, that's outside of nature. You can't just like um, put the, the causal processes of the universe on hold for an, for, for an instant and let God come in and do something. Like that, that strikes them as, as wrong. And, um, but there is, uh, there is this third option with um, like Whitehead and Griffin where they basically say, well, yeah, we can agree that there shouldn't be anything outside of nature. Well, the, like the, the obvious possible solution is that um, God is part of nature, that God isn't like that, um, that super being outside of the cosmos that, that just injects himself whenever he wants to, to do whatever he wants and has this veto control over the, or this complete control over everything that, that happens, that as a natural part of the cosmos, the, the, like the, the action of God or the will of God is an intrinsic part of that causal process. And what that means is that there is a, there is an influence, a divine influence that is constant, that is always part of every process going on at any given time. So it's not that there are just every once in a while, there's an injection of, of divine influence, but that there's divine influence all the time. And it's the same type of divine influence all the time for all of history. And that it's only at certain times where that divine influence has like a, a greater or lesser effect. Um, it's a variable. And, and that applies to any system of cause and effect, right? You know, at, at any given moment, um, 
you know, the this light that uh, that is in this room that's like shining on us. Well, it, it'll be it'll be shining on us when it's on, and it won't be when it's off. But the the causal process is always there. The principles are always there, um, and that's the reason why the light can turn on and turn off. It's because those laws, those those processes are constant. So the, with like divine influence, there's like there will always be a certain type of divine influence, and we'll describe the way um, or how Griffin and Whitehead characterize that divine influence in a bit, but there's always this divine influence, just like there maybe there's always this like potential within us for these um, for these great kind of acts of intelligence or or create or genius. Um, but it's only in certain conditions that 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 influence will get expressed in a certain way that um, that uh, that is like really noticeable. But it won't be different in kind from the kind of exp- from the kind of influence that is going on all the time in every in every action of the universe and every choice and in every interaction from the lowest level to the highest level. Well, it, it's interesting <laughs> because because uh, Marshall kind of approaches. Um, some of these ideas, at least in a video that he had made, uh, as we mentioned earlier, he is a Christian. Uh, he goes to church groups and, and speaks to them on, on the subject of evolution and intelligent design. Uh, but he's also a very big proponent for um, exercising one's uh, awareness and actively listening. Now, he'll call it the, uh, the Holy Ghost, uh, evoking the Holy Ghost or, or, or listening to messages from the Holy Ghost. But his point is um, pretty much that if you, if you begin your day, for instance, by listening, by actively listening, by uh, exercising your awareness and your consciousness in a kind of, um, uh, in a questioning mode where you're, you're leaving yourself, um, where you're actively making yourself open to uh, to listening, not to your email messages, not to your phone messages, not to all the types of things that you'd be doing in the course of uh, running a business uh, or running a house, uh, but just kind of listening, um, that, that there is a, a kind of a connection that can be established um, with, with the mind of the universe, if you will. So uh, I'm not sure how far that goes towards um, Griffin's explanation or not. Um, but it sounds to me, you know, it's very interesting for me to hear um, Perry go into this, this whole mode because it suggests that, uh, that there's a whole part of his life that doesn't have to do with his uh, Google AdWord marketing business uh, or even his research necessarily in, uh, in evolution. Uh, that there is a... Um, that there is a, a facility that he's trying to nurture within himself to, to take on information and to listen and to, as a hypothetical, uh, act on it or, or at least consider it as part of his, um, as, as part of what he needs to think about. Mm. Well, I think that that would be consistent with, with uh, like this type of philosophy, this process philosophy, that there is a, and that, that, um, because process philosophy is basically it's open to this it's open to religious sensibilities and religious experience and so that that leaving oneself open that listening is to is to try to discern and to to receive um, like the 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 messages or like the information that is coming from higher from a higher level of reality and that um, 
like the me- the way I like to think about it is that the like the message is always being sent. Like the signal. What's the line from Serenity? The like the the signal's always on. The signal's already always being sent. But it's like you have to you have to tune your your receptor in order to pick it up every once in a while. You just don't you don't get automatic access because there's so much blocking the signal. There's so much noise. A lot of that noise comes from from our own biology. It's like when you have a drive to do something, a biological drive to do something, that has to be overcome. It's not like we can just automatically override any of our like biological systems. Um, that's a that's a huge part of what we are that contributes to to you know to our identity. Um, so the, there needs there's got to be like there are, are techniques or modes of of uh, of thinking or or of acting in certain ways or doing whatever practicing certain things to make oneself more receptive to to those kinds of um, like influences. And so that that's just why I say that it would be at least consistent with um, with this kind of philosophy. Um, I'll, I'll, I just want to read a couple paragraphs from Griffin's book where he talks about these kinds of things. So this is in response to the idea that uh, Darwinism, that like Darwinism's kind of the inherent atheism in it, um, the and that it, like Dar- uh, atheism isn't like inherent in um, Darwinism, like per se, but only insofar as Darwinism also applies like materialism and positivism and um, and like the the rejection of uh, of any alternative kind of like uh, biased mutation or anything like that. Um, so this is what Griffin writes. He says, um, Whiteheadian theism, it should be stressed, is fully naturalistic. Divine influence in the world is a regular, a regular necessary part of the normal causal process, not an occasional not an occasional interruption of this process. And it is consistent with uniformitarianism, because divine influence is said to occur in basically the same way always and everywhere, by providing possible forms for actualization. The divine influence does vary in content, in that different forms are relevant for different occasions. But variability in this sense does not violate uniformitarianism any more than does the fact that Although, formally speaking, my mind always influences my body in the same way, by providing aims for its various parts, my mind provides different aims for different parts of my body at the same time, and different aims for some part of my body at different times. So this is basically just in, in different words what, like what I was paraphrasing earlier, is that there's this um, constant divine influence, and he, he lays it out right there, by providing possible forms for actualization. Now this gets back to like Jordan Peterson's um, definition of consciousness, right? What is consciousness? Consciousness is um, um, being exposed to like pure potentiality, possibilities, and bringing possibilities into actualization. It's being presented with choices and making one choice and bringing one, like manifesting one choice. And that's that seems to be that seems to be what consciousness is. It's this um, like uh, it's this this encounter with potential with possibility and then the, the 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 transformation of that possibility into actuality and this is how we realize certain ideals this is how we um, um, fulfill and and achieve certain goals this is how we become better people this is how we create new things this is how we um, you know invent things and and uh, you know create pieces of art and 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 write and and work on our relationships that's all everything is is this process of of taking possibilities and bringing them into action, and we can do this automatically by just like um, um, by just going by habit. But if we just go by habit, we'll be we'll we'll be habitually 
actualizing the same forms. We won't be bringing anything really new into into creation, into our lives. Um, but um, but when we want to bring something new in, this is where, um, well, for both. So I, when we're when we're acting habitually, and when we want to bring something new, what is the source of the aim, the source of the of the 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 goal, and the source of this new this new thing that we want to bring into creation? Well, that this is what Whitehead would say is that the that the source of all of that is the mind of God, that God is 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 what holds all of those possibilities in mind to make them possibilities. And, um, well, I'll, I'll read one more paragraph. This is, um, this is on truth, beauty, and morality. So, thanks to, its, thanks to its inclusion of this soul of the universe, Whiteheadian naturalism need not be nominalistic. Um, nominalism is the idea that only the names for things exist, but the actual forms themselves don't exist. So we might have a name for, for instance, like a certain body plan, like an arthropod or something, but the, the actual form itself as this kind of like platonic ideal or this, this thing that exists outside of, the, of its um, various particulars, um, that the form itself doesn't exist. So there aren't, aren't, there aren't, actual, aren't any actual concepts, there are only the words that we use to, to describe concepts. And that is um, like an implication of neo-Darwinism is 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 this belief that there are no real forms in creation in in the cosmos because they are non-physical, therefore they can't exist. So he says that this nominalism is um, is overcome. The soul of the whole can provide a home for the eternal forms, which Whitehead called eternal objects, be they logical, mathematical, geometric, moral, or aesthetic forms. And the divine appetition for these forms to be actualized in the world can explain how these forms, being mere possibilities, can have causal, e- causal efficacy, so that their presence can be felt by the creatures. This dimension of the soul of the whole provides a ground from which forms of all types can, can pervade the universe. The eternal forms are the material of the divine persuasion. The soul of the universe, with its appetitive vision uh, for various forms to become incarnate in the world in due season influences us by wetting our appetites for these forms. So the argument he's making here is that like uh, traditionally and contemporarily, the, the, we can hypothesize that if these forms exist, they must exist in some kind of mind because this thing like there needs to be some intelligence and that we would call this like the divine, a divine mind, a cosmic mind basically the mind and the soul of the universe, and that that is uh, potentially a, a source for, for where all these forms are. Because if they're not physical, they have to exist non-physically, and if there has to be some kind of consciousness involved, they have to be like in a consciousness, they have to be in a, in a, a mind, uh, something intelligent, that, uh, that's, what, that's what leads um, these guys, Whitehead and Griffin, to hypothesize that this is like basically the mind of God that holds all these forms. Well, but then how do these forms become... What, what he says, efficacious. How do they actually um, become able to work in the world? Because like, you, can, you can imagine that all these forms exist, but why would that mean that any of them actually get materialized, get, like, put into, get brought into, actual, um, into the actual cosmos and made real? Why one and why, why not another? Well, this is where he gets into the idea that, um, so what gives causal efficacy is, the, is the, what he calls the, like, the appetition of, of the divine, this is basically what the divine mind wants. So there is a 
there is a direction, there is a, a goal in mind, there is a teleology to to this mind, to this uh, to, to creation. So that there, so and and by like so, if you imagine that um, like the mind of God has certain things that that it wants to happen, it has certain directions that it wants creation to move in, and then the beings themselves can feel a bit of that, and that well, the only reason that we can feel. Um, pulled in one direction or not is because the, 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 there is at the very root of reality there is this appetition there is this like kind of divine desire for for things to happen and that so when 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 there's when there's a need for instance the, the reason we feel the need and the, the reason we are pulled in certain directions is because that has like a given weight in the in the in the mind of god which is um which is a um like basically within this grand storyline and the the evidence for that would be, for instance, the progress that you see in evolutionary history, because Darwinism um, denies that there's any progress in in evolution in history. Like uh, natural selection and random mutation are value neutral. It's only if you survive or not, and only if you're adapt only if you're adapted to your environment enough to survive. But like Whitehead would say, that's nonsense too. Like because what is more adaptive than dead matter? It's like you don't need life in order to to be adaptive in order to survive. Protons do it perfectly well on their own without any kind of biology. Um, so life itself is anti-adaptive, um, and that's the mystery of evolution: is to understand how this anti-adaptive thing that we call life came to be in the first place and how it proceeds. Um, um, so oh. taking that into um, kind of a different, well, not necessarily a different direction, but more to um, another concept that he was uh, talking about in his book um, was the uh, concept of, well, I guess it's a dual concept, inner gradualism and external saltationism. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about um, bringing something new, uh, this new form into existence, mm -hmm. well, that would be what he called uh, external saltation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a jump basically from from one form to the next and so what brings you to that point what brings a thing into um to the point where they're now like okay now's the time for us to bring this new thing into being mm -hmm. well i think what what griffin at least would say is that first of all these forms need to exist right um and they like they they must if we if we look at the fossil record and if we look just at our own lives like there are there are jumps like darwinists are famous for saying that well and not just darwinists but uh, scientists before them that nature doesn't have jumps mm -hmm. because the existence of jumps the, the the existence of these saltations is that uh, is indicative they think um, of some kind of divine influence because these forms must exist on their own somehow that then jump into like jump into being without the intermediate parts without the mm -hmm. in intermediate forms like there's a jump from one form to a to to another form and this is what the what this is the intuition that the intelligent design people have about like irreducible complexity like these molecular machines that can't operate um, that can only operate with all the existence of all their parts but which but where the the parts themselves can't serve any function without all the other parts so how do all of these parts come into being at the same time it's the mm -hmm. same problem of the cell itself right Irredu mm -hmm. it's irreducibly complex and all forms like this are irreducibly complex because um like a lot of um like griffin quotes a lot of darwinists themselves that point out that 
um, when you look at these different life forms, these different body plans, that they are systems. They are holes in themselves. And if you just add one change, you can't change one of the parts without changing the other parts because it throws the whole system out of whack. Yeah, it's the chicken and the egg. Right. They all need to come together. So this question of how do do you get from one form to the other? Well, using this... um, this process philosophy, the idea would be that, first of all, these forms exist. So they, they exist as possibilities. So if you take an organism or any kind of being at, that exists as it does in one form, and you present, you, it is presented with a need for a new form or a desire for a new form, mm-hmm. um, and let's say the conditions aren't right, um, for whatever reason. So it's got this, this, um, this instinct or this, like, this pull towards this new form. And it can, it can, um, like Griffin would say that this happens, um, like in the mental pole of the of the organism, because because all organisms have physicality and like mentality, and um, the the nature of like physical causation is basically repetitive. That the at any given instance, at, at any given instant, like um, uh, a physical thing will incorporate the the physical thing that it was before, and then repeat the pattern. It's basically a habit. And every every physical thing does this, you know, from protons and and atoms and and cells to to humans. Like you stay basically the same person from when from the same physical thing from one instant to another, with a lot of recycling going on. But there is this there is this um, this uh, like consistency and stability to the to the to the form over time. Um, but that when something new comes along, it first gets presented as an ideal to to the consciousness to the men, the mental pole of of an organism. And it, it might remain just a mental idea, like a, a, a possibility held and like and and striv and like striven is that a word? That basically that you that you strive towards that, that that you feel attracted to over time, but that the but once the physical conditions are, are right, and I'll get to that in a minute. Once the physical conditions are right, then that um, that mental form then gets like um, um, it almost like envelops the physical form, like a morphogenetic field, like Sheldrake might say. And rearranges that form, and then the and then it, so it gets instantiated, it gets materialized into the physical form using the materials available and reorganizing them into this new form. And that so you, if you're looking at it from the outside, you just see something change, just like watching a you know a phase shift in in matter, like you know water to ice or something like that. That you you see all of a sudden something changes. There's a jump, and it's inexplicable, like without knowing what's going on. But from the inside. What has been happening is this is this like long um, um, gradual process. Gra- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it's just the slow gradual process of of getting to the point where all of a sudden, mm-hmm. yeah, where all of a sudden it becomes um, not just possible, but um, um, I don't even know what the word would be like. Uh, not probable, but actuated. Yeah, but like it gets to the point where it's not just possible, but you can actually bring it into action. Like the conditions become like uh ripe for actualization and th- that's the thing i wanted to get to next is that he that he talks about is that <clears throat> it um like this idea isn't um well the creationist idea would be that this just happens at any this can happen at any time right mm-hmm. god can in, can inject his hand at any time to just put in a new form but the idea of this you know being a, a being a naturalistic uniformitarian model is that you know these processes are going on all the time and there are rules Right there are just like there there, there well there are physical rules for everything. I mean you you can't just you can't just put your hand through 
through the you know the wooden door whenever you want right without breaking it it's like there are certain limitations to matter certain like causal influences that just can't can't simply like be overridden on a whim there might be some really like weird and and cool physics going on like where things like that become possible but that's mm-hmm. that's another issue and it's still naturalistic but um but for for what we're talking about here um the basically the the conditions need to be right for certain things to happen so if we look at the the origin of life for instance um griffin would argue that you know for for however many you know hundreds of millions of years before like the 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 before the first life appeared um conditions wouldn't have been right um like you'd probably need a whole bunch of conditions to be just right you know to, to get to the point where okay you've got the, the potential for all these forms of matter you've got all of these um, um, like chemicals you've got all these um, elements and, and and they're available and and then once they're all available it's like then the conditions are met it's like oh and these can be reshaped um, like that's actually still a, a pretty big mystery um, but the that that's the, the kind of, that's the idea same thing with like a cell so a cell mm-hmm. it will it will have a certain need at a certain time. But if it doesn't have like the raw material available, it can't make the it can't make whatever needs to be made. It's only when that material becomes available that it can, they can it, they, it that it can then reform itself um, to make something new. It's just like you know if you've got a uh, any kind of idea in your head for something you want to do, you can't create it if you don't have the materials out of which to create it. It will only remain an idea in your head. It's the same principle at work in uh, in this evolutionary process where. Um, where it's only, you know, when the conditions present themselves that it can actually happen. There's actually a quote um, in this section in the book that I, that I want to read because I think, you know, Griffin says it better than, than I could. But I, I need to find it first, so maybe respond to what, <laughs> what I was saying first. Well, uh, just a few things on the nature of cells themselves. Uh, one is uh, they communicate with other cells. Uh, they exchange information with other cells. They arrange DNA, uh, they exchange DNA with other cells, uh, they edit their own genomes with their own form of language, uh, they can switch on and off at certain times, uh, which is what epigenetics discusses. They merge and cooperate, a process called symbo- symbiogenesis, and, uh, and in a larger form, they can create new species, they can hybridize. Um, you know, when you were going through that, Harrison, I was just thinking of not only uh, as above, so below the uh, esoteric maxim um, that human beings exchange information. Um, they also exchange uh, viruses. They communicate viruses. They communicate thoughts. They communicate emotions. There's this constant exchange on this on this greater level uh, among human beings. <clears throat> But there also seems to be, uh, through conscious awareness, maybe, uh, a, a communication that goes downward to ourselves. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the, uh, the thoughts that we have, um, the, the diet that we have, all the information that we have via our, our awareness and, and our accumulation of knowledge that in some ways uh, can be said to inform ourselves. Uh, if getting back to the point we were making earlier, if, if there were certain needs that need to be met in the moment, there might be such a, um, 
such a desire, such a will uh, for those needs to be actuated that they, that they act on ourselves in, in some way. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, um, why not these thoughts, why not a two-way exchange between you know, this cosmic mind that you mentioned, uh, the, the forms that exist in the universe, that we consciously make an effort to uh, be receivers for, um, you know, if, if we attempt to, uh, you know, listen to, to what those forms may be and to uh, actualize them, um, maybe, maybe this, is a, this is a kind of full exchange. We're, uh, we're part of a, an, a larger process without even realizing it. Um, and this is something that, uh, that neo-Darwinists and, and materialists would, uh, would seem to denigrate or, uh, or just leave out the possibility for. Just one interesting thing that I wanted to mention before uh, we go on is the uh, the idea or the the fact that Behe writes about this in his book, The Edge of Evolution, where he discusses the fact that um, so we have these uh, master control genes that are involved in the creation of you know these really important modules like a head or wings or a middle body, and he said that these were already in existence. The material for these forms to be actuated with were in existence about 30 million years before the Cambrian explosion. So I just, I thought that was so fascinating that there was a, you know, the, this pathway for this multiplication of the forms for all of existence to, to emerge was there um, before, and just implying that this teleological um, purpose of life in order to, to uh, manifest these, these forms. And, and one thing, another thing that I wanted to mention uh, that I thought was a drawback to uh, Perry Marshall's um, theory that cells were the most intelligent, you know, that cells are the intelligent designer, uh, was, uh, was something that's made up for with Griffin's uh, theory is that, you know, when you see the species emerge, um, you know, it's obviously it's not just random mutations because there, there's a giant spike in actual definite mm. forms that stay the same. And then, but Perry Marshall's theory doesn't explain that either. No. Because you, I don't see how uh, you can say that the cells themselves are intelligent enough, you know, to just, you know, to create these forms. I guess that you would say that the designer or whatever that created the code would, ha- um, would have designed those, but the cells themselves aren't. The forms are the, are the reason for mm-hmm. the code. Right, and the forms are... The forms are potentially what whatever intelligence exists within the cell. The forms are what that intelligence um, connects to, yeah. like prehends in some kind of way, and then those forms themselves act as attractors. Um, so that it's a it's a mutual process. It's like so that's why why I said Meyer is right is that like the cells don't have all this on t- intelligence on their own. They can't come up with this with these ideas with these forms on their own, and they can't they don't have the like the power just to to um, well first of all to to perceive the relevance of them. On their own, like there needs to be like a, a whole like uh, cosmic process um, making all this possible in the first place. So the, the the forms have to exist on on their own in some way, and they have to be given this kind of weight in order to be seen as relevant by the organism. And then that that has some kind of that attract they they they, they act as attractors in some way that that pulls the matter in the direction of of that new form, and. That, like Griffin would say, is the is the inf- is the divine influence involved in this process. It's not God coming in and rearranging things on His own, um, 
you know, by fiat. This is actually this is a natural process of how the physical world interacts with the non-material world. Now, one thing that none of these people get into, um, which is maybe uh, maybe one of the last directions we can go in this show. I don't know. We'll we'll see how much time we have and if any ideas come up. But there's something else that's missing here, and that is um, like again how this exactly happens because the like the intelligence design people um, they're uniformitarians too um, and I'll explain my reasoning for this so like I'm like I, in that quote that I read uniformitarianism is the idea that the the only causal processes acting like that we can hypothesize about previous actions are are causal processes that are happening today so it's like we can't um, we can't hypothesize that like a million years ago there was some other cosmic process that that existed that we don't um, that we don't have today, right? We we need to to, to use the 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 philosoph- well the the principles of of nature and uh, and scientific well physical processes. Like basically, they need to be potent at least possible at any given time. Of course, that's not to say like for example that you can have sunlight before there's a sun but at throughout that entire period the physical like processes that would create sunlight for instance from a sun are are constant um or something like that so the use and that's the that's an argument that neo-darwinists use the the intelligent design people use it against the darwinism the, the darwinists because they say okay well if we're going to be uniformitarian about this what is the only known causal you know process to produce new information and that's where they could say intelligence, right? So we have to say that, um, that 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 there must have been intelligence involved at this time to create this new information, because that's the only known um, cause that we know about. It's a it's basically a uniformitarian argument. And um, what the so we can ask the same question: says, well, what is the only known way for an intelligence to reorganize matter? without this, you know, physical divine hand coming in and reorganizing it, right? How does, how does that actually happen? Um, uh, like, Griffin hasn't, d- doesn't say it explicitly in this section of the book. Like, luckily, he's smart enough to get it in other sections, so you can, you can tell it it's part of his worldview um, and part of his overall, like, like scientific and philosophical framework. Um, but the only known way we know, about, we know for that to happen is psychokinesis. What's the only known? What's the only known way of of receiving uh, a message from another intelligence when they're not standing in front of you and telling you it like physically? Well, it's telepathy. Um, one of the things that Whitehead argued and that Griffin really expanded on, based on Whitehead, is the existence of and the reality of telepathy and psychokinesis. That these are actually essential and fundamental parts of of reality and fundamental to consciousness too. That that um, whereas Darwinists and materialists in general will say we only ever know anything through the senses, Griffin and Whitehead say, well, the like physical sensations and our, our, our physical perceptions, like the apparatus, the apparatuses that we use to to gain information about the world, that's actually a secondary mode of perception, and that the most fundamental mode of perception is non-sensory in nature, non-sensory non-sensory perception, and that is like essentially what we would call telepathy. 
So Griffin actually has like in this in this book, and he's got an entire other book devoted to parapsychology and why it's actually important to look at, and it it must form a part of our overall like scientific and philosophical worldview because it is a part of reality. It is natural. We just most scientists and philosophers and thinkers just don't know how to fit it into their reality. Well, they can't because they because they're materialists. But it is possible. This is what uh, what Griffin's saying. So, what is the only known way of influencing physical systems at a distance? Well, it's psychokinesis. And what's the only way of receiving those signals? Well, it's telepathy. Like psychokinesis and telepathy are like two sides of the same coin. You've got the active, like sending, and the the more passive receiving. So. Um, uh, like a, a person or an intelligence that sends a signal to a physical system is is exerting a kind of psychokinesis because it is um, acting on that system and then the reception of that is like a um, is like a telepathic influence um, and whether it's operating well it also matters on when it, whether it's operating on the the mental or the physical pole right if you're um, if you're operating like if you're moving some some bits of matter like you know you're trying to do a or you've got a, a practiced medium or like just psychic person that is, or maybe that's not even the right word, but someone who can do psychokinesis, for instance, like, you know, they're, and they're moving an object with, with their mind, that is, um, um, well, maybe I'll get into this just briefly. What Griffin would argue is that what's going on there is that the, the sender, like the, the person doing the PK, is actually sending a signal, like sending a form or an aim with their with the agency of their own mind into the mental pole of whatever that object is whatever the and if it's just like a a piece of wood then into all of the like cells and molecules well if it's dead wood then all the molecules that make up that wood and it's basically hypnotizing them like it's sending them a message saying oh you are moving these influences are acting on you as as if you are getting pushed by the wind for instance and then the the all the molecules that make up that they respond as if they're actually getting pushed by some kind of of like physical influence but they're basically being tricked you know they've they've been they've had an uh, an external aim inserted into their minds and then they respond as if that influence were a real physical influence and you can see this in hypnosis too when like um when you have hypnotically induced lesions or burns on on people and that's been demonstrated where you 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 put someone under under hypnosis and tell them they, that they've just been burned by a cigarette and this burn this like this boil uh, um, or this what do you call it uh, you know this burn mark will appear on their skin or they've you know, or they've been pricked by a by a, a needle and and they'll start bleeding there it's as if like their skin in that area has been convinced and tricked that it's been that it's actually received this influence but it's actually it's a it's a mental um, they've They've received this mental influence, convincing themselves that this physical thing has happened when it hasn't, and then they ha- they give the reaction as if this thing has happened. So, this can this is why I think that uh, like PK and DSP are actually like um, in some form like more like a fundamental part of reality. How is it that the that the cosmic mind is able to to influence the minds uh, and the, the minds and therefore the matter of the the beings within the cosmos? It, it is a form of psychokinesis and telepathy. So that's why um, when these things would would happen, like let's say you were you were an, an external observer observing the first cell appearing, um, like on planet Earth in some you know in some way then it would appear as if it just appears out of nowhere. 
But what's actually going on is that all the all the parts that make up that whole are being influenced by a higher intelligence that that then that and that intelligence is holding basically an aim in mind, a goal in mind, is kind of like imbuing it with with this um, like attractability with this desirability there's this kind of like emotional pull that's why it's called an, like an attractor it's acting as an attractor because there's an emotional valence to it there's a relevance to it and the the through through the the means of this almost like t- telepathic influence on the the parts that make up the whole it those parts then respond and desire to be that thing and then they form and they take that shape and that so that shape that both that shape and the um, like the original um, impetus, the original like attraction towards that form are within the the, the source of the 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 influence, and then the the, the parts that, ma- that then make up that new form in reality, like in the physical world, um, like respond to that, and that would be like a microcosm of how the entire universe works, how the entire cosmos works. Is that there there are these um, these directions, these ideals, these values, these norms in the mind of God that exist. And that then, because they are because they are valued by that mind, by the whole, we then feel that value ourselves. And that is what pulls us in certain directions. That's what directs the entire evolutionary process in a certain direction towards complexity and more intelligence, more complexity and more intelligence. And um, that's what arguably drives humanity, um, at least some parts of humanity, in the direction of like truth, beauty, and goodness. But uh, but the well, an interesting part. I, I'd argue that the the reason not all humans are are driven by those goals is because of free will. It's because these things can only come about if beings are free. But the the instant you have free beings, they are free to choose whatever they want, and there are tons of different influences that can that can shape what you want. So you can then with a, with a highly complex, highly intelligent individual, there's no guarantee that they're going to make the right choice. For for whatever reasons in that individual's life, they may they might want things that are diametrically op- opposed to that cosmic vision, and will actively work against the cosmic vision, and that's what I think. Uh, I think metaphysically that is the explanation for what evil is. It's it's a rejection of the 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 cosmic aim, the cosmic plan for the cosmos that to to um, to battle against like the forces. Of creativity, you know, in favor of destruction. Because the like creative force is the is the direction of evolution, is the direction of like the the evolution of the cosmos and and all of the things within it. But there are forces that would, um, you know, that because of free will, will choose to um, to totally subvert that process. Well, there was something um, going back to the inner gradualism and external saltationism with what you were talking about. I was thinking along the lines of if you have, uh, well, you have to have the, all of the, the supporting things together. Like you can't just build a house. You have to have all of the, the foundational stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to have all of the materials there. That's what I was looking for. Um, so as far as what or how these new, uh, species can come about. Well, maybe they have to have certain parts of their DNA in certain places, which only comes along after they've gone through the process of being within the species that they are presently in. So they're being drawn by this form of gravity um, towards this new form. 
And the only way to get there is to experience uh, their current form mm -hmm. and, you know, continue to progress and change the DNA. And then when everything just comes together, when, when all the conditions are right, then that's when the new uh, can come into being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mar Marshall would call it adaptive mutation as mm -hmm. opposed to random mutation, and I, I think it's a an excellent way to describe what what you were just getting at, Adam. And um, he also, uh, just getting back to your point, Harrison, he says evolution 2.0. This is his um, argument for the fact that intelligent design does have a place in thinking about evolution. He says, it's far from mindless, is literally, is literally mind over matter. The unfit adapt, order and structure increase. Cells exert control over their environments. Underdogs come from behind and win. Consider how information is measured. Distance is measured in meters. Power is measured in watts. Time in seconds. And mass in kilograms. But information is measured, measured in bits. 8 bits equals 2 to the 8th power equals 256 combinations or possible choices. Each bit is the freedom to select a 1 or a 0. That's what makes it useful. Bits are choices. Information capacity is capacity for choice. A choice is a totally different thing than a kilogram or a watt. That's why Wiener, a scientist he was discussing earlier in the chapter, said, information is information, neither matter nor energy. That means materialism cannot explain the origin of information, the nature of information, or the ability to create a code or language from scratch. It can't explain thought, feeling, mind, will, or communication. So um, I was thinking about this passage when you were discussing uh, the uh, the the thought-induced burn marks on the individual and how it's information, uh, uh, whether it's communicated uh, through word or through language um, spoken or through uh, this non-sensory uh, you know, non um, receptivity uh, that, that literally has a, an influence on us potentially physically. Mm -hmm. uh, the implications of that one idea are enormous you know would does does an objective more or less objective or a greater objectively um correct understanding of what we're discussing can that can that even have the potential to to bring ourselves and our and our dna mm -hmm. into some kind of order or uh or viability or potential that that may not have existed previously like mm -hmm. like cleaning our rooms and 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 getting everything in, in order makes things more organized and easier to navigate through. Does a does the very idea of of what we're made of, of, of at the cellular level uh, help us to reorganize ourselves on on a level we rarely even think about or, or consider? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting as above, so below. When you consider that potential possibility, is as a human being, uh, the types of transformations that you can undergo personally, and then you know taking that to different levels and, and what kind of potential there is, uh, you know, for experiencing different things mm -hmm. or different uh, modes of being or. Yeah. Well, on that, I want to, I want to maybe to close out, I want to read um, just a couple paragraphs from the book. This one is in 
first one is on, uh, well, from the section on intergradualism and outer saltationism, and I think it kind of applies to this, you can apply it to this kind of human level where, um, you know, the forms can basically gestate for a while, and then the, the, the transformation will come, or does, can and does come. So Griffin writes that changes of appetition within the mentality of the individual can accumulate for a long time within its hidden subjectivity, adding up to a quite new gestalt, which can then all at once be made manifest. Although there is a saltational change in the outer world, the change that has been going on behind the scenes, which is the only change that the divine appetitions can directly influence, has been gradualistic. Any one of the steps might have taken dozens, hundreds, thousands, or millions of years. The whole process from the time the novel form becomes relevant to the time when it is phenotypically incarnated could take any length of time. In this way, Whitehead's theistic naturalism allows us to do justice to the apparent need for phenotypical saltationism. And then one more quote. This is also um, this is on the, from the section on divine, divinely induced ideals. The language of the occasional implantation of new forms, to be sure, may seem to contradict ontological uniformitarianism. If the divine reality occasionally acts in an extraordinary way, rather than acting in one and the same way always and everywhere, has not our purportedly naturalistic theism become supernaturalistic? The contradiction, however, is only apparent. The divine reality acts in the same way in every period and relation to every individual event by providing forms, possible forms for actualization. The fact that certain periods of the evolutionary process are extraordinary, in the sense that radically new forms quite suddenly get incarnated in the world, implies no new type or even intensity of divine activity. Rather, what makes the epoch extraordinary is that some of the creatures have become ready to incarnate new forms of order. Exactly what makes them thus ready will probably always largely be largely beyond our understanding. The suggestion made above, however, is that the divine appetition for new forms has finally evoked a sympathetic appetition for these forms in the creatures in question, an inner appetition that eventually results in a saltational change at the phenotypical level. The divine activity is constant. Only the dramatic responses to this activity are occasional. So this is... This is again a restatement of the of the inner gradualism and outer saltationism. Is that these processes are going on within us and within humanity, and uh, well, within everything. Um, we can apply it to humanity now. Like there, that theoretically, there have been uh, there are forms that have been introduced in the into the consciousness of mankind that are gestating, and that uh, and this can apply to groups or even individuals, and that at the at the right moment. Um, you know, it manifests, and so I think that this kind of philosophy can even approach, it can even apply to like the discussions we've had about like positive disintegration, for instance, because if you look at the the foundations of positive disintegration, the theory is that there is a personality ideal that is striven towards. I'll use that word again, and that uh, and that you hold in mind, and that it is held in mind for a long period. And it isn't manifested for that entire period. Like you're working towards it. You have this ideal in mind, and the goal is to eventually, p- potentially, fully manifest this ideal. Um, chances are it won't happen for in the vast majority of cases, but you can get closer. But then every once in a while, the conditions have been right. The individual has um, has gone through this period of 
of conflict, of inner conflict, and of, of, of positive disintegration, and then the new form gets instantiated, and their personality basically transforms, and they become that, uh, that new, mm-hmm. new version of themselves that is in line with their, with their ideal of themselves. And that they, that then they can they can then bring in the like they can then bring in new values to the world through their actions through their um, whatever career or or you know mode of activity they've chosen for themselves they then bring that value into the world and um, so that's why I just I think it all fits together I'll leave it there just a mind blowing uh, episode I think great job guys. I uh, think that's going to be it for us. Um, tune in tomorrow for Newsreel with Joe and Neil at noon Eastern Standard Time and then Friday for the Health and Wellness Show. Uh, soon to be in a video format. Ooh. <laughs> well, we're going to have to have to light a fire under our butts to get us to the video too. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. All right, you guys have a good weekend and thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Take care.